excited about this series and what we're going to get to do together. You know, as we look through this chapter, one thing that really stands out in my mind is that we serve a God who loves to celebrate. He does it every day of creation. And one thing I'd like to celebrate just as we begin is so many of you who worked so hard, invited so many people to make last Sunday just an incredibly special day and just an incredible crowd. Thank you for that. Just celebrate what God is doing in all the doors that God is opening. Yes, thank you. All right. So, you know, as you start a story... Any good author has a great opening line. Reader's Digest did a survey not too long ago about the 15 greatest opening lines of books. I'm going to show you a few of these and see if you can guess. I, I like this, this also quotation before we get started. You, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge it by its opening line, all right? So tell me the author of this most famous opening line, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Man, you guys are sharp this morning. Who said that? Charles Dickens. Thank you, guys. All right. Now, tell me the name of this book that starts with this line, Call Me Ishmael. Moby Dick. I guess we had our literary scholars in first service. All right. Moby Dick. All right. This was not only a book, but also a movie. You better not never tell nobody but God. Your woman, Oprah Winfrey, was a part of this. The color purple, you'd go for that hint. Now, if anybody gets this one, you get free guest parking for the next year, okay? (laughs) All right. Here's a, tell me the name of this book. It starts with this line. Here's a small fact, you are going to die. What an opening. Anybody know? The book thief. Sorry about that. Now, here's the most famous opening line of all time. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I mean, that line sets the tone for the whole book and the whole story of our history. You know, it is his story. It's history. If you go just to the first chapter, God is mentioned 30 times. And this tells us everything we see started by this creator God. It's, it's, it's quite different from the stories of most ancient gods who were in the middle of matter, who were in a battle with another god, and somehow the earth was established. In this story, it's quite different. God stands away above matter. God creates everything that we see. It's an incredible story. And when we think of the breadth of what God has created, we must stand in amazement. I mean, look at this picture. This is just the Milky Way. It's the the galaxy, the universe, the galaxy that we live in. Now, let me tell you, our galaxy is 100,000 light years across. What does that mean? A light year is 5.8 trillion miles. It's incredible. Now, we didn't know this until a few years ago, but that's just our galaxy. There are 70 billion other galaxies. And here's what Genesis is trying to say to us. God created all of this. And you've got a choice whether you believe that God created it or whether you believe it just happened by chance. There just happened to be this explosion and nothing created something. And you go, well, well, I just choose not to have faith. My, My friends, you have no choice. You must put your faith in something. 
Either you're going to trust that there was a God who created this with such intricate and beautiful design that he's who you're putting faith in, or you're actually trusting that nobody designed this place. Despite the fact that the earth is the perfect distance from the sun, the axis is on the perfect tilt for humankind to live. It's an amazing story, and it all starts with God. Now, as we get into Genesis chapter 1, I want you to understand, Genesis chapter 1 is poetry. It's beautiful. It has a rhythm to it, a cadence to it. You know, in, in the Bible, they're not near as worried in ancient times about chronological orders we are or about, you know, how this ha- They want to get the point across of what happened in creation. So look at the next line. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, here's the cadence we're going to see. For the first five days of creation, God is going to say at the end of each day, it is good. Uh, the, the, the Greek word, the, the Hebrew word there is tov, which, which actually implies love. God says, oh my goodness, after every day, man, I love this. And so we've got this cadence. Now, if you notice the first six days of creation, they match one through three and four through six. Let me just give you the overview. On day one, there's the formed, okay? Let's go ahead. There's two points there. First of all, it's formless and void or empty. And then when we see these first few days, on the first three days, God forms. And on the last three days, God fills, all right? Let me tell you about it. Day one. Day and night. Day four, he fills it with the sun, moon, and stars. Day two, there's water in the sky. Day five, there's fish and creatures and birds. Day four, God creates the land. Day six, he fills it with animals and vegetation. It's formed and it's filled. And then when we get to day six, at the end of that day, We reach the pinnacle, the masterpiece. And God doesn't just simply say, it is good, it is good, it is good. God says, it is very good. What is this pinnacle? It's the creation of man and woman, of humankind, of of humanity. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And God celebrates that. It's his masterpiece. Now, let's get into that a little bit deeper. We're going to start in chapter 1. We're going to go into chapter 2. What's pretty interesting to me as we read this is if you've really read through Genesis, you might get a little confused because there are two creation stories. And it's not because they're contradictory. It's just one starts it and one fills in the details. Chapter 1, we begin to see about the creation of man. Look in verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, and the birds in the sky, over the livestock, and all the wild animals, and all over all the creatures that move along the ground. Now, notice one very distinctive word on that first slide there. Let us create man in our own image. Right from the beginning, we have the implication of the Trinity, that the Father, Son, and Spirit are involved in creation. We, we find out here that it was God the Father's idea of creation. We'd find out in John chapter 1, it's Jesus who is the literal creator. And it's the Holy Spirit that hovers and sustains creation. Go to verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. 
And what does God, God tell them? God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So there we see the beginning in chapter one. Now, you don't, won't see this on your slide, but we have the second creation story in chapter two, verse four says, this is the account of the heavens and earth when they were created. And let's just get into that. Look in verse, verse 7. We'll go over some of this, this same material there that we're talking about. Verse 7. Then the Lord God formed a man. Let's stop there just for a second. A few months ago, we were talking about God. I taught you every time you see the word Lord in all caps, what does it mean? It means Yahweh. First chapter of Genesis, Elohim, the normal description of who God is. Second chapter, Yahweh, the personal name of God. What's it saying? From the very beginning, God wanted a personal relationship with us. So that's the way it begins here. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed, this beautiful perfect garden of Eden. Then look what happens in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. There's the warning. And then we see the creation of woman. First of all, verse 20. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and the wild animals. To name something was to have authority over it. So God puts man authority over the animals. Now, so, you know, we got Adam naming all of them. But let me tell you, at the end of naming this, Adam's just going, there's something missing. All right? I mean, I've seen the hippopotamus. I've seen the giraffe, you know. Uh, and th- this is not what I'm relating to, God. I need something more. And then God does this. But for Adam, there was no suitable helper was found. Now, we're about to talk about woman. And I don't want any of you ladies in here to be offended that he calls you a suitable helper. That is not a lowly term. In fact, nine times out of ten in your Bible, when the word helper is used, it is describing God. It's an elevated term. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her unto man. The man said, and guys, these words in the original language are like he is bursting with excitement over what he sees. This is now Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. I used these very lines last night in a beautiful wedding here in our worship center. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. What are we seeing here? This is a place of complete innocence. Sin has not entered the world. 
Eden is a perfect place, and there's no shame involved for man or for woman. So we see the story. Now this morning, I want to focus on two points, two applications here. First of all, I want to explore what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Because right after the sixth day, we see that God rested. On the seventh day, God rests, all right? Now, guys, listen to me. God does not rest because he's tired. He rests because he's finished. He's accomplished everything he wanted. So as we look at this story, first of all, God calls us that we have been created in his very image. That's big, big, big. And then second, we're going to get really practical this morning, maybe even uncomfortable, as we look at the implications of this story. Let's start with the image. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? Because, guys, this separates us from all of creation. Now, we understand this to some point. Here's what it means. If you look at an image, you're reminded of the real thing. Okay, we're not God. We're not omnipresent. We can't be everywhere God is. We're not all-powerful. We can't create billions of galaxies. But there are ways that we reflect God. And so when you see us, you see the image of God. It's like, like a quarter. If I were to hold this quarter, you hold your quarter, you, you see an image of George Washington. Is this quarter George Washington? Absolutely not. But it's meant to remind you of the first president of our country. It's an image that points you to him. And here's the deal for us. When people see us, they should be pointed to God. We sometimes say this about children. He's the spitting image of his dad. Or she's the spitting image of her mom. You don't want to say, she's the spitting image of her dad. Okay, that's not a compliment. All right? But, but, but we see that. What we're saying is, man, when I see this daughter, I'm reminded of her mother. And that's what God wants to have happen with us. So how are we God-like? Let me give you quickly just a, a few words to describe this. First of all, we're rational. We use reason. Animal world works by instinct. We're able to sit down with a problem and reason and think through and be creative like God. We're also volitional. You say, what in the world does that mean, buddy? It means that, that we get a choice. Just like God had choices of what he did, us made in the image of God, we have choices. In fact, did you notice in the very first chapter, God sets up a choice. I mean, they're given this tree, and they're told, you got a choice here. And, it, and if you eat of it, it's not going to be good. Now, and I'm not trying to be too direct here, but I, I think the passage warrants it. There are many people in Christianity who believe that everything in the Bible is predetermined, predestinations of the word for it. Now, here's my question. If God creates him, he gives him this tree, he says, you've got a choice of whether obeying me or not. Did he mean that, or was that just a play? Was that just a joke? No, I actually believe he meant it. Because what would it say about God if he gives them, he creates them, he warns them, don't eat of it, and when they eat of it, he punishes them when they had no choice. Or even later on, if you want to talk about it just for a moment, you know, God creates two of us. And, and one of us, he sets up, predetermines that we are going to obey him and be good and go to heaven. And the other one of us, 
through no, nothing of our own. He, he creates and he sets it up for us to be a failure and for us to go to hell. I read a book this summer that said something I'd never heard that really jarred me. It says, to believe that is an attack on the character of God. In what world would that be loving for God to set up some people for disaster and some for success? And so right here in the beginning of our story, we find out that we are given choice and our choices have consequences. Now, why would God do that? Because it's so risky. Here it is, guys. God wants a love relationship with you. And it was worth the risk that millions of us would reject him, that a few of us would accept him. Because he wants real love. He doesn't want robots. What else are we like God? We're moral. Yes, God gives incredible freedom of choice. But that freedom has limits. And so right off the bat here, God begins to give moral limits. Now, now why does God do that? Is he trying to, to mess up our fun? No. God's trying to protect us. It's like if you get on an airplane. You want the pilot to pay attention to the manufacturer's limits. And every plane has how high it can go, how quickly it can fall, how fast it can go without being destroyed. And so you're counting on that pilot to understand. He's got great freedom in the air, but he also has some limits he better go by unless it's going to be destroyed. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been out to Maxwell for the Thunderbirds air show, man. They press the limits. But those people absolutely know how far they can press the limits without it being a disaster. And my friends, God has given you incredible free will. But he also knows that you could destroy yourself with that free will. And so he's given you limits to protect you. What else? We're also relational. We found out here that God has lived in eternal relationship among the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I've heard it told before is, you know, God was so lonely and he didn't have anybody to share life with, so he creates man. Oh, God was not lonely. He's not codependent on us, guys. God did want to share his love with us. And he made us to be like him in that we are relational beings. Let me tell you, if you don't have good friendships and good relations in your life, your life will never be fulfilled. Because God has started from the very beginning to say, that's important in your life. What else? We're also, and please catch this word, we're regal. What does that mean? It means that we are kings of this earth like God was. We were made, did you read it? to rule over the earth. We were told to keep it, to cultivate it, to be creative. You see, here's what God did. God created the world, and then God says, I'll tell you what, I want you guys to be my ambassadors. I'm going to empower you. You're above every other creature, every other thing. I'm going to empower you to rule the earth. The problem is man didn't make it very far as the ruler. And not until Jesus is that position restored to us. So that's a little bit about being born in the image of God. Please, please understand that about yourself. Now let's get to the implications. Because in these two chapters, there's so much. And I'm, I'm going to give you a list of, of, of seven things. And so it's going to be too much for you to think about. But I, I want you to focus on the couple that really apply to you. 
can go to your life group and discuss this. What are the implications? Because so much, everything is put in place in the beginning of the story. What are the implications? Implication number one is about sexual ethics. God created them, very clearly in Scripture, male and female. Now, we live in a day today where we've decided there are more than two genders. And I'm not here to belittle anybody or make fun of anybody, but this is serious business. We've decided you could be a he, a she, an it, a they, or you name it. The New York Times has over 80 personal pronouns that are different than he and she. And so we've decided that that is fluid. That's what you'd call freedom gone crazy. Because in our country today, we have politicians fighting for a five-year-old to be able to choose what sex they are and undergo operations and medication. It's pretty scary. But here's the truth. Even if that happens, if that person's 55 years old and they go to the operating table... The doctors, absolutely, to do the right thing, need to know if they were born male or female. We say something really, really sort of foolish today. We say, the doctor assigned their gender. No, it was obvious, okay? Richard Dawkins is one of the world's leading atheists. You may have heard of him. I mean, he really hates Christianity. But he slipped up the other day, and he said, there are only two genders, male and female. And that man has been absolutely attacked by the media and by the press after being their darling. Now, what other sexual ethics? We also see here that marriage was designed by God between a man and a woman. That's the way God created it. And that's been true from the beginning. The Apostle Paul often refers back to this story to prove his point about male headship or about marriage. Because it's right here in the beginning where God defines marriage. I always love the quotation from Chief Justice John Roberts when the Supreme Court changed the definition of marriage to include gay marriage. And Roberts voted against it. But he said to his fellow justices, who in the world do we think we are? What's he saying? After thousands of years, in every culture, in every religion, is marriage being defined between a man and a woman, who do we think we are that we could change that? I think it's a legitimate question. You guys, this doesn't just apply for people who may struggle with same-sex attraction. This also applies to heterosexual people. Who do we think we are that we think it's okay to have sex outside of marriage? Um, God has absolutely put those rules on it, and when you break it, you will suffer consequences. Because I'm not trying to be critical here. I'm not trying to throw stones at anybody. Because every one of us has feelings we have to control. Uh, things in our life that we have to bring under the parameters of God's guidance. That's not true for one set of people and not for, it's true for everyone in here. So we're not, I'm not throwing stones at anybody. In fact, I would like to be extremely sensitive to anybody in this audience who is struggling with gender identity or same-sex attraction. That's a tough thing to face. And yet again, God loves you enough to put some boundaries. Now, other implications. While we're being controversial, let me go ahead and give number two. It's the environment, all right? And this is one that just blows my mind that's controversial. God tells us to take care of the earth. 
That's our job. Now, we've got two extremes today. We've got one extreme. I'm trying to go on the left so you see the left. We've got one extreme that says you ought to worship the earth. Uh, the earth is God. I mean, worship it. I mean, it, everything. You're not any better than a plant or an animal. You're, that, that, that's, that's on one extreme. On another extreme, which blows my mind, is we've got people who just don't think we should ever talk about the environment. To talk about the environment is controversial. And guys, I know this firsthand. Ten years ago, I did a series on stewardship. I did one message on stewardship of the earth. I actually talked about some radical things like recycling. And the next day, I got an email from a friend of mine, we got it straight later, who says, buddy, you are a left-wing, left-wing pinko. I said, I am a pinko, but I'm not left-wing. But I mean, it was, it was, it was I, I was just blown away that even in a church taking care of the earth, which was our commission, was controversial. And I know, guys, because it's become politicized, that's the reason for this. But guys, the first environmentalists on the earth were Christians who said, this is created by God, and he has tasked us, commissioned us to take care of it. Number three, I love this one. Now we get a little bit easier. There's an implication here about worship. Because when we see the creation, we see the artist. I'm going to just show you one picture. I mean, you've been in those places where you see a sunset like this. And just listen to these passages of what God says should happen when we witness something that beautiful in creation. Listen with me to Psalms 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. What's he saying? Nature speaks so loudly in silence. And when you witness something like that, or you think of some of the beautiful scenes you've been in, they're meant to point you to God. The reaction to something like that is go, oh my goodness, I've got to worship him. Listen to this passage from Romans chapter 1 in verse 20. Listen to what happens when we, we don't recognize the creator. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. What's he saying? You can look at creation and deduct from that there had to be a designer behind this. There must have been a God. And so he says, so the people who don't understand that are without excuse. Listen, I love when we gather here to worship. And one of the best ways to prepare your, your heart for worship is to go in the beauty of nature. And that worship doesn't just have to be within these four walls. It can be every day in your life when you see something beautiful and you just stop and you worship God. A few more implications about work. Guys, work was God's plan for humanity from the very beginning. Now, we know the fall messed work up, but sometimes we believe that work is a curse of the fall. No, work is a part of God's ordained mission for you. And so when you work, I want to challenge you about your workplace here for a moment. You are to work there and present the image of God and to bring glory to God. And also on the other end, number five is rest. 
God sets up a divine rhythm of six days of work and one day of rest. We call that the Sabbath. Some say, oh, buddy, that's Old Testament. Listen to me. This is not anything to do with the Ten Commandments here. This is everything to do with the rhythm that God set from the very beginning. And guys, many of us know from experience, when we violate that rhythm, it does great damage to us and often to the very people we love the most. Number six implication is how we treat people. We're made in the image of God. Everybody you know is made in the image of God. Is there someone in your life right now that you're struggling in your relationship? Remind yourself they've been made in God's image. Maybe you're struggling with your own self-image. Remind yourself that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And then final is the implication there is we are still on a mission. What was the mission that God gave Adam and Eve? We'll look at it really quickly. We'll talk about it more next week. Here's the two parts of the mission. To dwell in communion and to fill the earth. To partner with God to fill the earth. Man was God's partner. So here's the beauty of the beginning of this story is that Mankind is walking in the Garden of Eden, we'll see next week, in the cool of the day with God. God's not some distant figure to be afraid of. God is a close figure to draw near to and to walk with in your everyday life. That's the way God wanted it from the beginning. And God also commissioned you to be his partner to fill the earth with his glory. That's what we're to do. I want to ask you this morning. Are you being the image bearers of God? In ancient kingdoms, here's what would happen. If a king took over a new territory, to mark that territory as being his, he would post his image, maybe on a sign or maybe on a building. There would be a picture, an image of that king. And what that meant was that king reigns here. He rules here. And guys, here's what you and I are to do. is we leave this place in a few moments, and you go into your home, You are to be the image of God that says, God's in charge here. When you go to your workplace, when you go to your school, when you go in your neighborhood, you are to reflect his qualities to the point that you bear his image. And we begin what's going on between creation and new creation. A lot of times when you read a book, you go, okay, I've read the beginning. Tell you what I'm going to go ahead and do. I'm going to go ahead and flip over to the end of the book. Let me tell you, if you do that today... The beginning, the first two chapters, Genesis 1 and 2, are about creation. The last two chapters in the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, are about new creation. God is seeking to restore everything that was lost in the garden. And one day the earth will be restored to its glory and that will be heaven for us. And in between now and then, we begin to stake out territory for the image and the glory of God. Let me say this to you right now before we sing. If today you know there's no one that could look at you in your life the way you're living it and go, man, you remind me of God. I mean, I know you're not perfect, but, but man, there, there's, there's something in you that's, that's God-like. If, if that's not true right now in your life, let us pray about it. Let us pray your kingdom come, your will be done. Today, if there's some of these implications, they're not just general implications for this whole church, but are specific implications for you. And you want us to pray about it.
We don't want to get out of here without doing that. Why don't you come right now as we stand and sing?